Amen. Thank you, Heather. Thank you, Adam, band, joyful noise for leading us in worship, preparing us for the Word of God. We're in John 4 today. We're going to be looking at 27 to 42, just a couple of announcements. Our preschool ministry has openings. Joanne says for volunteers, I say for ministers. So please pray if you are the one. It's a very strategic ministry in our church. So please see Joanne Mormon. And then Rick and Kim Hagens have one of the most strategic and important ministries in our area. Harvest Evangelism Ministries, his place, Hosanna Home. They're having an open house on Friday, or Saturday rather, at, beginning at 8 a.m. They're going to feed you. They're going to do tours. You're going to get exposed to uh, that vital ministry. And it really is a way uh, for us to carry out the Great Commission. Just one uh, expression of that, a very important uh, expression of that. You can see Kim Hagen's. I'm going to give her cell phone because she published it. Kim, don't be mad at me. Uh, 334-740-1645. 334-740-1645. So there's going to be food, testimonies, tours. You get exposed to their ministry. And I encourage you uh, to, to learn about what God's doing there and has been doing for many years. Well, if you would look with me, we're going to be looking at verse 27 to 42. But for context, in verse 15, as Heather just read about or sang about, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you were right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. The one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Father, the reason this text is given to us is that we may behold the Christ, the I Am, the Lord Messiah. That's what we need more than any other thing we might perceive that we need this morning. May we do that today as the word is preached. May your spirit grant us illumination in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Samaria was the capital of Israel. 
And it was in a bad way. It was being besieged by the Syrians, their enemies from the north. On top of that, there was a famine in Israel. And the prices of food have become so high that virtually no one could afford food. To make matters worse, some of the people in Samaria had resorted out of desperation, and may I add wickedness, to cannibalism. In fact, the law reveals to us that to be at that state is to be under the curse of God. We read about that account in 2 Kings chapter 6. Meanwhile, as 2 Kings 7 opens, you have four lepers in Samaria who are obviously ostracized and they are cut off from the rest of the people. They were unclean. They're sitting in the gates of the city because that's where lepers and beggars would find people who would give them food, people going in and out. The problem is no one was going in and out of the city because it was under attack from the Syrians. All was lost. There was no hope in Samaria. It was a hopeless situation. And the lepers found themselves even more in a hopeless situation. And so they reasoned, what can we lose? Let's go to the Syrian camp. We're going to die here and we're going to die there. We may as well try something. And so the, the four lepers went to the Syrian camp. And when they got there, surprisingly, no one was there. The scripture tells us in 2 Kings that the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sounds of chariots and horses so that they thought Israel had allied forces coming against them and so they fled their camp. And so here these four lepers are in the camp of the Syrians and they have full reign and they begin to find things, all manner of things that would keep them alive. And so they begin to gather food and, and clothing and all kinds of these things. But it was at this point, these four lepers, ostracized by their people, realized something. They said, this is good news. This is good news for Israel. And they said in 2 Kings 7-9, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. Let us go and tell. Now the irony is that these outcast lepers who had been forbidden to reside in their home city now had the message that would save their people. And today, we see another outcast who, like these four lepers, was from Samaria. And like these lepers, she had beheld good news. The good news that would save her, not just physically, that would save her spiritually and eternally. And like them, she knew 
she could not sit on this good news. We would not be doing right. That would not be doing right. This was a day of good news. And though she was an outcast, miraculously, we're going to see it led to a harvest of souls. Indeed, she's going to learn today is the day of harvest because the Lord of the harvest has come. Indeed, the first thing we see in our passage, we, the people of God, can be assured. We are assured of a harvest because we sow. In other words, when we sow, we can be assured. Look with me in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar. Isn't that remarkable? She came to get water. And we saw last time that she was consumed with the physicals, consumed with the, the material. Of course, we need water. We need physical water. We need H2O. But this represents something even greater here, that she is no longer consumed with the material and the physical. She left her water jar, and it says she went away into town and said to the people, I love this line. It's one of the most beautiful lines in all the gospel. Come see a man who told me, who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? I don't think she's asking questions at this point. She's preaching. Can this be the Christ? Now, last week we saw, and we just read in the text, that Jesus told her about her past and her present. You had five men, five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. It wasn't the browbeater. It was just that she needed to understand the bad news before she could understand the good news. And we saw that this reflected the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in a remarkable passage in Ezekiel eleven five, it causes me to fear, but it also causes me to stand in awe. I know the things that come into your mind. That's what the Lord says. He knows that of every human here, all humans in all of history. I know the things that come into your mind. Of course, that's bad news if we're being honest with ourselves. We have to understand the bad news in order to understand the good news. And this woman intuitively understood at that moment that she had been encountered by the Lord, who is the Messiah. And it's clear as a result that she's been born again. You know, the new birth is something that happens instantaneously. There may be preparation there may be years of preparation as we're going to see people sowing into your life. But the new birth happens, it's not as a process, it's an event. It happens instantaneously. Now why would I say that she's been born again? We're going to see later in the passage that it's clear that she recognizes he is the Savior of the world. But I say this here because of the change that has taken place in her life. She left her water jar, and she is now consumed with this man, and she wants others to know about this man. You know, these are the same people who have marginalized her. 
Think about that. Uh, she came to the well at noon because most women came early morning, late evening when the sun had gone down or when it wasn't so hot. She came in the heat of the day because she'd been ostracized. She came alone when other women would come as a group for safety reasons. She had been marginalized by these people and it was because of her immoral life. But now instead of being ashamed of her past, she tells them, come see a man who knows all about my past. And I want you to look at this line again. So the woman left her water jar. The spiritual has become more important for her than anything physical or anything material. When we read this, it should open our eyes. This is where we need to be spiritually. You know, there have been books published on, on children, childbirth, that inform us of what a baby goes through when that baby is actually born. Uh, so many different things. For example, the, the eyes that have been previously accustomed to darkness now has to readjust to light. A body that has gotten used to a 100-degree temperature in the womb now has to get used to cooler temperatures. So many changes take place when a baby is born. And that's the way it is with the new birth as well. That's the way it is with regeneration. And the thing we see immediately with this woman upon her new birth is she cannot sit on the good news. She cannot remain silent. And note the great word here that reflects this is the promise of the gospel. Don't overlook this word. A word that has transformed many a soul and has changed many a broken family. And the word here is come. Come. Come see a man. You know how often that word is found in the Bible? I could just give you a few examples. Uh, for instance, in Isaiah 1, verse 18, we see the invitation. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That is a promise 700 years before the coming of Christ. Or Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Or how about what Jesus bids us to do in Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then in Revelation 22, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. That is a promise to every unbeliever here. And every believer here, has, you're a believer because you have responded to that call to come, to come to this man. Often I hear Christians say, well, I would evangelize, but I'm just not as equipped in the Bible as I want to be. And that should be a signal to you that you need to get better equipped. 
But think about what this woman knew. She knew nothing except this. And that one bit of saving knowledge was enough for her to say, come, come see a man. And note, we're expecting at this point, if we don't know this passage, that these people who have ostracized her for years are going to continue to ostracize her. But notice in verse 30, it's a miracle of grace. They went out of town, out of the town, and were coming to him. That's remarkable. The ones that we would have predicted would not have listened to a woman who was ostracized, a woman who was known for her sexual immorality, and they respond to her call to come. These are the very people who have had nothing to do with this woman. She had no credibility with them except a changed life and her willingness to vocal, vocalize her new faith. Of course, the power was not in her. God forbid if it rests on our power. The power was not in this woman. It was in the woman or in the one who came for a specific reason. That brings us to the second part of this passage. We are assured of a harvest because we sow, but we are assured of a harvest, more importantly, because Jesus, the Son of God, was sent to sow. Look with me in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. They look like dimwits compared to the Samaritan woman, don't they? They're still caught up with the material and with the physical. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now, we've often seen in John, Jesus makes spiritual statements um, where people take them literally and physically. So, for instance, in John chapter 2, he said, you tear down this temple and I will raise it up on the third day. And they're listening to him thinking, well, it took 46 years to build this temple. And he's saying he can build it back up in three days? Or then, John chapter 3, when he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, how can a, a, a man be born again when he's old. Can he go back in his mother's womb? And then in chapter 4, we saw Jesus offering this woman uh, living water. And, and she thought he was talking about physical water that would keep her from having to come back to the well day after day. Now, why does he use these metaphors? He uses them to confound the wise but to conceptualize for those who have ears to hear. So, for instance, when we think about the temple, those who have ears to hear recognize that that temple is a metaphor. Of course, we know that the temple represented the fact, or it, it was the reality where God atoned for sins for his people. He made reconciliation with his people through the sacrificial animals. It's where he would commune with his people. It's where his presence was revealed to his people. His will was revealed to his people. And now that temple is 
a conceptual metaphor to help us understand that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus has come to do. And then in the new birth, when, when Nicodemus thought he was talking about something literal and physical, Jesus was saying the new birth represents the fact that we are all broken, we are all sinners, and we need to be made new. It helps us conceptualize what salvation is. And then in John chapter 4, when she's talking about living water, we all recognize all of you will drink water today of some form. Because you know you have to have water to live. And Jesus uses that metaphor to help us conceptualize how desperately we need the living water of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, he's using a metaphor here. Notice in verse 33. He, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That comes off the heels of the disciples asking, has anyone brought him something to eat? And he says, no, that's not my food. You know, food here is, again, an enlightening metaphor for us. We make food a priority, don't we? Why? Because we need food or we die. And we gravitate to food that we find pleasure in. That's what we do. So food is essential, and food gives us pleasure. And everyone here has something that you perceive as essential to you, and that which gives you the most pleasure. Unfortunately, even believers struggle with this. Even believers are easily deceived into thinking that there is something that of greater importance and of greater pleasure than what Jesus calls the will and the work of God. And it's devastating to our walks. Jesus said, my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. This is an example to us all. This should be our food. Charles Spurgeon on this verse says this, Some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings, he's talking about corporate worship, that's a good thing, would be a good deal better Christians if you would just go and tell the gospel to dying men. You would find your spiritual health mightily restored. For very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. He's talking about believers, those who've truly been born again. All feeding and no working makes men spiritual dyspeptics. Be idle, careless, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead back to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of a Savior. And who wonders if you begin to groan and to murmur until you're ready to die of despair for those whose food is not to do the will and the work of God? Let me offer you a truth that is undefeated. This, is an unde this truth bats a thousand. 
the more self-absorbed you are, the more miserable and unfulfilled you will be spiritually. The degree of our contentment, the degree of our joy, our pleasure in life is correspondent to the degree that the will and work of God is our food. Lord, help us to get there. God's will, God's work gave Jesus, our consummate man, our exemplary man, complete satisfaction. Now let me give you the opposite of this. The opposite of this is seen in Isaiah 14 where we get to enter or, or we get to be exposed to the mind of Satan as he was rebelling against God in that initial revolt. In Isaiah 14, 13, listen to this. And I want you to notice how many I wills in this passage. God is speaking to him. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my thrones on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Five times there we see Satan assert his own will to climb above the station that God had given him, all the while ignoring God's will and God's work for Satan's existence. And here's my point. Since the fall, Satan's I will has been multiplied in every human heart. Only to be intercepted by the grace of God alone. This is the human predicament. And even Christians struggle with that. I will, I will, I will. And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of my Father. And knowing that Jesus was sent to sow and that the fields are ripe for harvest are a means of overcoming the I will that is epidemic in the human heart. That brings us to the third point. We are assured, now get this, this is an important point. We are assured of a harvest because the fields are ripe. Because we need to hear this. Because it's easy to turn on the news. Oh, we're so secular. People are beyond the point of salvation. No. We are assured of a harvest because the fields are ripe. Look with me in verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. So the image of a harvest is common, and many late viewers know this because we're such a great commissioned church and have been for so many years. This is often applied to evangelism and to missions, rightfully so. Jesus is essentially saying here, you know that saying that is well known, four months of sowing between the sowing and the harvest? Agriculturally, that's true. Spiritually, it's not true. That's what he's saying here. So believers, he's, he's speaking to the disciples here. He's speaking to us. Lift up your eyes. 
at the approaching Samaritans that are coming. Look at them, and you will agree that the fields are white for harvest. In other words, Jesus is saying, now that the Lord of harvest is here, it's harvest time. The harvest is now. It was true then. It was true in Samaria. And it's true now. And it's true in Auburn. It's also true overseas. And that's why we go. That's why we go. The harvest is now. And though sowing and watering still needs to be done, this is a time of harvest. But it does seem that the disciples would have thought, kind of like we do, this is Samaria. Those are Samaritans. There's no harvest there. These people can't be saved. They worship a different God. They don't even hold to our scriptures. And we are a lot like them. I know I am. I'm a lot like them. Maybe you are as well. We tend to think in most circumstances, let's be honest, we tend to think in most places, most circumstances, this is the wrong time. This is the wrong place. It's like the warning we receive from Solomon in Ecclesiastes 11, which, by the way, is wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes 11, listen to this, verse 4. Very important verse. He who observes the wind will not sow. You see what he's saying? He who looks at the conditions, and if the conditions don't look right, will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. If you're not going to sow because the circumstances and the situations don't fit your liking, you're not going to reap either. You know, one impactful person in 1873 didn't think this way. This person never thought it was the wrong time or the wrong place. That spring of 1873, a 33-year-old lady was at a service, and the preacher preached on this verse. And as he is preaching about the fields being white unto harvest, this woman knew God was calling her to China. And she went. She even ended an engagement with a seminary professor to go. She knew she had to go. And she served there for 40 years in the midst of the storms of war, plague, and poverty. And when she was in her early 70s, a, a plague came to China. It was a plague. It was a famine. And she gave all the food she had and all the resources she had. And she became very frail. And she starved, essentially, herself for the sake of others. The doctors told her, you need to go home or you're going to die. And she got on a ship. And on Christmas Eve, 1912, this lady who had been called to the ministry by this promise died on that ship now, appropriately, a, a missionary Christmas offering was organized under the banner of her name, Lottie Moon. Lakeview knows her well. Of course, Lottie did not live to see what would be reaped 
from all of her sowing. But we know much reaping has come from her sowing. And one day, we're going to celebrate with her. That's the promise of verse 36. Look with me in verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower, what is a sower? Someone who scatters seed. What is the seed? It's the gospel. So that the sower and the reaper, what is the reaper? The one who obtains a return from the sowing. The sower and the reaper, get this, may rejoice together. It's teamwork. For here is the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. That's how it works. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered in to their labor. So it's a team. We sow, we reap, we never know what we might be doing at any moment. But we're sowing and reaping. And it's a team that comes together. But the sower and the reaper will rejoice together. It reminds me of Psalm 126, 5. Those who sow in tears. Now why do we sow in tears? Because it's hard work. And we don't often, we don't see immediate fruit generally. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. That's a promise from the word of God. Now Jesus says, or the psalmist says, neither one say anything about those who never sow. Think about that. It's not even on the radar. For them, kingdom life is a life of sowing and reaping. That's the healthy life of faith. Anything else is an aberration. And I've got to tell you, too often in my life, my life has been aberration. But it's not healthy. It's not normal. The life of faith is a life of reaping and sowing. That's what kingdom people do. And that's why the disciples were not alone in their calling here. Nor are we. Now, if the Lord uses our witness to save someone. We can't go to the mirror and sing how great thou art. We can rest assured that we are reaping what someone else has sown. Now, there are times when someone hears the gospel for the first time and, and they're immediately born again. That gospel has the power to do that. But generally speaking, when someone is saved, there has been prior sowing in that person's life. Those who sow may not see the harvest. That's okay. We know it's coming. We know the gospel seed accomplishes God's good purpose. Isaiah 55, it's coming. Sometimes we may not see the fruit of our sowing. Sometimes we'll see it immediately. Other times we'll see it later. There was an elder at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. His name was Bo Bowen. And every year, he would travel to the Ukraine. Praise God for that. And he would go to the Ukraine, and he would, he would open-air preach, and then he would do door-to-door -door evangelism. One day, he was there with his, 
his colleagues, his, his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he asked this fellow uh, who was passing by to, to take a picture of them. The photographer took the camera. Here's what the photographer said to him. You probably don't remember me. But four years ago, you came to my apartment. This is a boy from Mississippi. He's in Ukraine. You came to my apartment. And you shared the good news of Jesus Christ. And how he died for sinners like me. I prayed that prayer, but I was going through the motions to please my mother. I was in a very bad situation for about two years after that. I was drugging and drinking. But in God's mercy, I remembered what you told me. That Christ died for sinners. I prayed again, and this time I meant it. He really did come into my heart. I have been forever delivered. You probably wonder sometimes if what you're doing really does any good. When we sow, that's often the case, isn't it? For me, God used it to save my life and my soul. The reaping came four years later. Indeed, we are assured of a harvest because of the power of the gospel word. Look with me in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town. Samaritans. This would have shocked first century readers. Believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Because of this woman who had known five men and the present man was not her husband. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. One of the evidences that we're saved, we long to commune with the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. They asked him to stay with them. If you never have that, you need to do a heart check. You need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. It's one of the evidences of the new birth. And notice, and many more believed because of his word. The word of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. It's the only power of God unto salvation. Now here's a crucial point that may shock you. But when you present the gospel clearly and faithfully to an unbeliever, that word has every bit the authority as if Jesus himself were speaking it. It's not your authority. It's the authority of the gospel word. It bears the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believed that, if I believed that, I would be much more liberal with my evangelism. I would be much more confident and encouraged that I will reap or someone else will reap what I am sowing. And that brings us to the final point. We are assured of a harvest because Jesus is the Savior of the world. Verse 42. 
They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know, we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. We should never be surprised at what God can and will do in unlikely settings. And most of us find ourselves in unlikely settings every day of the week. And that's important for us to understand because that's why we often fail to evangelize. Because we perceive ourselves in unlikely settings and unlikely situations. There's nothing more unlikely than what we see right here with these Samaritans. Remember, the Father is seeking worshipers. He's already preceded you. He's already done prior work. He's, wor he's, he's already seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And Jesus is the Savior of the world, which means the world includes unlikely settings. He is the Savior of unlikely settings and situations. Remarkably, the Samaritans were the first ones to call Jesus the Savior of the world. Isn't that remarkable? The first ones in all the gospel. And they were saved just a short time, but they already had a great commission vision. In fact, it's remarkable. We have seen Jesus go to Jerusalem. We saw that at the end of chapter 2. And then he went to Judea, chapter 3. And now he's going to Samaria. What does that remind you of? Acts 1, verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Of course, again, let's close this here. It's so easy to think, if I evangelize, I'm going to earn favor with God. No, this is not sacramentalism. Evangelism is not in order to earn favor. We can't do anything to save ourselves. Our salvation is rooted in what Jesus said in verse 34 when he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Remarkably, if you, if you move out, remove that middle phrase in verse 34, it reads like this. My food is to accomplish, or maybe your translation reads, finish his work. Now, why do I say that? This is the same word that he will use on the cross. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. It's the same word we find in verse 34. My food is is to finish. My food is to accomplish his work. Jesus ultimately accomplished God's will and his work on the cross where he took the judgment for sinners like the Samaritans and for like this Samaritan woman and for us who believe. And it's that same work that is not only the ground of our salvation, it's the ground for our motivation as the people of God. How could we benefit from Jesus' food being to accomplish God's work and not be conduits 
of that saving work for those around us. It may mean going down to the campus. It may mean just being faithful in your workplace. It begins in your home and your neighborhood. This is a word for every believer, but it's also a word for every unbeliever. Because I know there are some here this morning that cannot say my food is to do the will and the work of God. Because you have thus far rejected God's provision for sin. There's only one provision. It's in the Son who came to do the work of Christ, our God, to accomplish his work by his cross. But just like these Samaritans, just like this good Samaritan woman, you can have your sins forgiven. You can come to the cross this morning and have every sin, past, present, and future forgiven. So as Adam and our band comes and leads us, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. We're going to have pastors at the end of the aisles. There's nothing saving about walking an aisle. But maybe you have questions about the gospel or how to be saved. Maybe you would like to pray. Whatever it is, we'd love for you to come as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.